Well, since all the kids are in the service this morning and school is coming up soon, huh? Pretty exciting. Exciting stuff. Parents are all like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I thought I would get you kids ready for school um, by asking you some questions so you can shout out the answers. Okay, ready? We're going to start off easy because uh, I know it's been a long summer of enjoyment. What's one plus one? Two plus two? Five plus five? 10 plus 10, 100 plus 100. Okay, good job, that's, that's excellent, that's very good. That's enough, that's enough for now. I don't wanna overdo it. But, uh, you know, those things are true because they're mathematically true. They're not true because you, you believe they're true and so because you believe they're true, that makes them true. I mean, they're, they're facts. This morning we're gonna read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First 11 verses. And Paul is writing to the church to encourage the church in the grace of God, the love of God. And he does that by listing some facts. And so as we come to God's word this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to find that Paul's writing encourages us as Christians to look at what we believe and look at why we believe it. Because the Christian faith is not just a biblical claim or a theological, a theological claim. The Christian faith is a historical, objective, truth claim. And that's what we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, while some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Now as we come to Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church, here's the sermon in a sentence. The gospel is good news for you because it's bigger than you, it doesn't depend on you, and it empowers you. And Paul summarizes the gospel in two ways here. First, he summarizes what the gospel is, and secondly, he summarizes what the gospel does. And there's this great rhythm of gospel transformation. The grace of God comes to us, and we're united to Christ. And then as the grace of God is continually in our lives, we are sustained by that grace, united to Christ. And so in verse 1, Paul uses two words, and you'll notice it if you look at verse 1. He says, we both receive the gospel and we stand in the gospel. So we're receiving and we're standing. And this is Paul's way of, of describing 
um, that we're, we are united to Christ by God's grace and we're sustained by God's grace. And that was really good news for the Corinthian church, and that's really good news for the church here in KW as well. And so we're going to look at three things that this text, that I'm going to kind of pull out of this text. How is it that the gospel is bigger than us, which makes it good news? How is it that the gospel doesn't depend on us in order to be true? How is that good news? And then thirdly, how does the gospel empower us, which is also really good news? Firstly, how is the gospel bigger? Well, you know, there was, a, there was a point in time where everybody believed that the world was flat. Smart people believed this, right? Smart people like Aristotle. He was in the Platonic Academy in 347 BC. He was a smart guy. Aristotle wasn't a slouch. But by, by physical observation, Aristotle was right, right? He, he thought, um, you know, according to what, what they call the geocentric model, he looked up at the stars and everything seemed to be revolving around us. And so he's like, uh, I'm pretty sure that everything is revolving around us. And, uh, but then along comes Galileo in the 1500s, and he says, introduces the heliocentric model, he says, actually, we're revolving around the sun. Everything isn't revolving around us at all. You know, and humanly speaking, we can shrink the gospel down to think that the Bible is kind of revolving all around us, and we read the Bible like we look at a GPS screen. And in the GPS screen, the arrow's in the middle, and no matter where you move, everything is just, you know, arranging itself in relation to you. But what Paul gives in the scriptures here, what he says is, the gospel's way bigger than us. It's not about us. It's actually about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, which is really good news for us. It's good news that the gospel is a lot bigger than us. And believing that the world does, you know, revolves around us isn't a toddler's problem. It's a, it's a human problem. And so it's easy for us to come to the scriptures and forget the greatness and the grandeur of it. So in verse 1, Paul says, hey, you're being sustained by this, you're standing in this, and your entire faith is not revolving around you, it's revolving around a Savior. In verse uh, 2, Paul uses this phrase, and I want to just talk about it really briefly. He says, well, you are being saved, present tense, continuing, right? You are being saved if you hold on to the word I preached, and then he tacks on this thing, he says, unless you believed in vain. Now on the surface, we can read that and think that means, hey, you better be holding on because you're being saved by your great grip. But I want you to understand what Paul is actually doing here. Uh, so let, let's, break it, let's break that phrase up just real quick so we can understand how good the gospel is. First of all, he says, you're being saved, present tense, um, if you hold on to the word I preached. And the word that was preached was, Christ did everything. Christ alone saves you. That's the word Paul preached. So, he's, so what he's doing is he's doing two things to the Corinthian church, which is the same two things I'm doing this morning. He's encouraging those of faith in Christ alone. He's saying, you're being saved. It's good news. And then he's simultaneously encouraging those who don't have saving faith, who are believing and trusting in something else. And he's provoking that. And that's why he uses that word, unless you believed in vain. Because in the Greek, in vain means without basis. So what he's saying to the Corinthian church is, there's some of you here who have a faith that doesn't have a ba- you don't have a basis for your faith. You're saying yes to Jesus, and Athena, and Diana, and, and, and a lot of other Greek gods. You're, you're saying yes to Jesus and a lot of other things. And Paul's saying, that is, a, that is a faith that's in vain. That's not the faith I preached to you. I preached to Christ alone faith. And so that's what he said in Corinth, which is what I, week in and week out at, Re- at Redeemer, repeatedly encouraging the church in faith, but also provoking to say, well, if Christ alone uh, isn't your Savior, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ alone, then what, are you, what is your ultimate uh, truth? What is your ultimate trust in? What is your ultimate hope? 
and life and in death. What is that? And so Paul's provoking this, and he says, uh, and he says it in that way. And so it's important we understand that. Otherwise, if we interpret it to mean Paul is saying, uh, you're being saved by your mighty grip of faith, then you've got two problems. The first problem is he's contradicting himself about a hundred other places that he keeps on saying Christ alone. That'd be the first problem. But then the second problem that you have is that you're saying you're being saved by your action. You're being saved by how great you're holding on. In other words, Sunday after Sunday, I would start each sermon by saying, Good mythical morning! How was your faith this week? How hard are you gripping on to Jesus? Because if you're not holding on hard enough, strong enough, then this is Shredder Sunday. And your adoption papers are snap, it's done. And so you, this next week, you better hold on better than you're holding on to this week. Because if you don't, right, you, you know, he, God isn't going to, you know, get that angel to, you know, reprint some new adoption papers for you. I mean, that's kind of where everything kind of go, ends up going, which would be horrible. I know in my own life, if it was, if it was not Christ's grip of grace on me, but my grip on him, then they, God would have had to assign an angel full time to stand over the Lamb's book of life and write my name down and erase it, and write it down and erase it, and write it down and erase it, if that were even such a thing, which it isn't. You know, an angel named Pelagius maybe would be doing that for you. <laughs> You history buffs, you can enjoy that joke. The rest of you don't care. Uh, moving on. So that's what Paul's doing. He's encouraging the church. Then he says, first of all, which is literally saying the most monumentous thing I could say to you is that Christ died, lived, died, and was resurrected according to the scriptures. Notice he says, according to the scriptures. He doesn't say, according to eyewitness accounts. He gets to eyewitness accounts, but he doesn't start there. He starts with, according to the scriptures. Why? Because he's, he is pointing to something that is eternal and unchanging, the truth in the word of God. And he's pointing to something amazing, which the church at that time would have understood. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was prophesied in Genesis 3, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 140, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, Job 19, Hosea chapter 6, and about 300 other places that we don't have time to go to this morning. And so Paul is saying, according to what God has been saying for a few thousand years, uh, since Abraham, okay, since that point, Christ has fulfilled all things. So Paul points to that first, which is amazing. And he does that because he's saying, and kids, look down at your notes for a second, because then he says Christ died for our sins. And that little phrase, died for our sins, talks about how the cross was total substitution, and it was not partial contribution. Right? His death paid for our ransom. So Paul wants to start there. Kids, take a look down at your notes for a second, and you'll see where I've written down for you. It says that how substitution, Christ dying for our sins, it separates Christian faith from all the other world faiths. Why? Because God is satisfied, not on the basis of your work, but on the basis of the work of another, who is Jesus Christ. That's what separates. That's what caused the great Reformation in the 1500s, was this business of Christ being able to do absolutely uh, everything that God required for us. And so kids look down at your notes again, and uh, I've written down there, there, there's the five solas of the Reformation, which is where everybody said, we better put all our chips on Jesus, guys, or we're all in trouble. And the word sola in Latin means alone, which are these five things, which is that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is what Paul says right here, according to the scriptures alone, 
to the glory of God alone. Right? Those five things. You can talk to me after the service if you missed any of those blanks, and I'll help you out. But this is the great scandal of grace, right? Is that the cross is a completed work. It's not the believer's starter kit. We don't contribute to Christ's work. We celebrate it, and we glorify him for it. Right? That's what, that's what we're doing. And so, kids, take a look down again at your notes, and you'll see that I wrote down there for you. It's that because of sin, all humanity faces death, but Christ's cross is the remedy for death and for sin. So Jesus didn't come to treat our symptoms and make our life a little more comfortable on our way to our inevitable deaths. He came to solve the real problem, uh, which is he solved the problem of the finality of death. This is the gospel. This is what Paul was encouraging. So Sunday in and Sunday out, we're only gathering for one reason, and that is to worship the death-proof Savior of the world, who by a word of his power is holding the universe together, who by his great life, death, and resurrection has paid the price for your sin. Anything less than that is uninteresting and, quite frankly, hardly worth rolling out of bed on Sunday morning for. So the gospel is way bigger than us, which is what makes it such good news. But let's look at the second thing that Paul gives us, which is that the gospel doesn't depend on us. The gospel doesn't depend on us to be true. Any more than you, believe, you believing 2 plus 2 is 4 makes it 4. It's just 4. It is a mathematical reality. So the gospel doesn't depend on us to be true because it's an objective truth claim. The, the, the resurrection, the empty tomb, it's a historical fact. Jesus is God. So kids, look down at your notes again. God comes in the flesh and he writes himself into human history. He writes himself, the the great universal playwright writes himself into the play. Because without him writing himself into the play, none of the characters have any concept of of the writer or the creator. And God writes himself into human history. And that's what Paul gives us here. And some people would say, well, isn't the resurrection just this great thing of fiction? I'm going to read something from a man named Philip Doddridge, who's a theologian in the 1740s, and he wrote a book called The Rise of the Progress of the Religion of the Soul, and you guys know Wilbur, uh, Will, William Wilberforce, who was responsible greatly for the abolition of the slave trade in Africa. He read this book, and he came to faith in Christ by reading this book. Here's a quick quote you know, on, was the resurrection just fiction? Here's what he says. Had the resurrection of Christ been only fiction... So many false hearts and false tongues would have never acted in concert, nor would they have all kept the secret which torture and martyrdom might urge them to divulge, especially if there had been one traitor among the twelve, which there was, on account of which they might have been conscious of the fraud, and a general suspicion of each other's secrecy might have arisen. So he's basically saying... You know, when the, when, the, when the pressure got turned up and martyrdom started happening to the disciples, that would have been a really great time for them to say, <laughs> just kidding, okay, we, we just really wanted to overthrow Rome. We're messing with you guys. That would have been a great time for them to just, you know, that wasn't a hoax. But anyways, why is it a historical fact? Let's, let's kind of look at this. Because the Christian faith is not a check-your-brains-at-the-door faith. Uh, Christian faith stimulates our intellect and it, apl- and it, and it appeals to our hearts And so what Paul is doing, if you apply literary criticism, look at what he does through this text. He puts together a methodical, systematic, successive list of people you can check with to see if what he's saying is true. Dear Corinth, right? 
go check what I'm saying. Go talk to some people, north of 500 people. So he's writing this. There's this process. He says, first he appeared to Peter, or it says Cephas, uses his Aramaic name, then the 12, then the 500. And he appeared to 500 people at one time, which was probably most scholars say on Mount Tabor in Galilee, because in Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said, after I rise from the dead, I'm going to meet you guys in Galilee. Well, that would be a meeting you wouldn't want to miss, right? On the third day when Rome is freaking out and everybody's running through the streets and they're saying, tell everybody they stole the body, they stole the body, they stole the body, tell everybody that they stole the body. You know, how did these centurions magically fall asleep and these ragtag fishermen who are scared for their lives hiding behind closed doors magically steal this body from Maximus Aurelius? Just, we don't know. Just tell them that they stole it. And while all of this ruckus is happening, you better believe that 500 people would have said, well, he did say he'd rise from the dead. Maybe we should go to Galilee and see if, it, see if this is true or if it's a hoax. So 500 people go to Galilee and 500 people see the risen Christ at one time. What's Paul doing? He's saying, he's, Paul is saying fact check. Fact check it. We don't check our brains at the door to be Christian, to, in Christian faith. That's why he says we appeal to the scriptures, thousands of years of prophecy that was fulfilled, and go talk to some people. That's what Paul says to do. I'll say it to you this way. Um, consider the following things in Canadian history, okay? In 1950, the 10th Prime Minister of Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie King, died. 1950. January 16, 1960, Gordie Howe passes Rocket Richard as the all-time NHL scoring leader. 1965, we got a flag for this country and a national anthem in 1965. That's not long ago. Before 1965, we had no flag and we had no anthem. Fact check it. Let's keep going. The Beatles did their last show in Canada at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto on August 17th, 1966. Were you there, Dad? I was wondering. I know Dad, Mom and Dad went to a lot of concerts back in the day. They went to a lot of concerts. I thought maybe you guys would have been at that one. But you want to know something? There's people alive that can verify everything I just said. Raise your hand if some of you are like, well, as I said some of those things, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Is there anybody in here? Yeah, there's hands. There's some people in this room. That's what Paul was doing. Kids, we don't believe in fables and fairy tales. Paul was saying, check the scriptures, read them, and if, and, and if you've still got a problem with over 300 prophecies of the resurrected Christ, then go talk to Frank. That's what Paul was saying. He's inviting them to do this. It was amazing. And so Christ, when he died, I mean, in the death of Christ, historians from all worldviews agree that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. It's, it's nearly universal. You may find some North Americans that say it was a legend, but most historians, uh, regardless of their worldview, agree the life and death of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb is a historical fact. There's lots of debate on why the tomb was empty, but the fact that it was empty is not up for debate. Rome itself admitted it was empty, and they just said somebody stole the body. So first of all, this is just a matter of historical fact. If you travel to Israel or Greece or Rome, some of you have done this. Uh, for them, it's, it's just part of their history. It's just part of like this. That's where Paul walked. That's where Peter walked. That's where Jesus walked. It's just part of their history. The burial of Jesus was publicly known. Everybody knew Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. 
and his name was written down. It was like, fact check, check it out. Go check with this Joseph of Arimathea guy. This is the way that it was all written. It was, uh, and then the, the resurrection, being raised, like I said, all of history agrees that the tomb was empty, uh, but there's great debate on why the tomb was empty. And so for us as Christians, our, as our, our faith in Christ alone, we say, Paul gives us that the gospel is good news for us because it's not depending on us to be true. We rest in it because it is true. Michael Horton, who is the systematic uh, theology prof at Westminster Seminary, says it this way, We don't believe the gospel because we believe in God. We believe in God because we believe this gospel. We don't say, well, I believe in God, and so since I believe in God, I guess i got to just accept the Bible and check my brains at the door. No, that's not why we believe in God. We believe in God because the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. And because it's a historical fact, that uh, we place our faith in Christ alone, and he gives us hope in life and in death. You know, I remember sitting in my office and wrestling with all this years ago, digging and reading deeply and broadly, is this true? Can this be true? Am I crazy? Does Dawkins have it right? Am I just, like, out to lunch? What is going on? You know, the deeper that you go into that, you stop having scientific inquiry and you start having philosophical inquiries. And the philosophical inquiry is this. We're made of dirt. Everybody agrees with that. You know, I'm a theologian, not a scientist, so I don't want to go too far, but I'd be willing to say this scientific truth. Science doesn't have a solution for death. Right? In, in the hour of death, only God is great. Which may brings me to a place to say, what gives me hope in the here and now? To think very deeply about the problems of evil, about the problems of humanity, about what's going on in our world. To think deeply about it, but not get depressed. To have great hope and great resolve. To not only love my neighbor, because, you know, helping old ladies across the street is somehow, you know, a good thing and going to get me in God's graces. That's not relevant. It's that it, the, the life that you and I are living, loving our neighbors, is flowing out of ultimately a place of real rest and worshiping God, that our lives are in his hands, that he solves our ultimate problem. Death itself. The finality of death itself. And so the gospel doesn't depend on us to be true, and that is a good news. This empty tomb is the hinge. The empty tomb is the great hinge on which our faith swings. If it happened, then the Bible is true. If it didn't happen, the Bible is irrelevant. It's just not relevant if it didn't happen. And so that's why when you and I read the scriptures as Christians, and we come across something that is difficult to understand or a passage is difficult to interpret, we have to interpret the difficult passages through the obvious ones. That's, the, that's the, the, the smartest and safest way to interpret Scripture. But secondly, when you come to a passage that confronts what you think, that confronts your ethic, that confronts your ideas, and Paul was doing doozies in Corinth because Corinth was messed up. Wait till I go through Corinthians. I can't wait to do it. I go through the book of Corinthians with you guys. This church was like crazy. People are like, oh, to be like the early church. We are like the early church. We are the early church. The letter was like, mm, dear Corinth, stop sleeping with each other. Some of your, you know, crazy sins and kids are in the service this morning, so I will be vague. But they're making the Gentiles blush. Cut it out. Also, don't get drunk at communion. When the rich people show up because they didn't have to work and they drink all the wine and then the poor people show up later and there's no wine, maybe you want to find another way to do this in a more gracious way. Love Paul. Right? So, when we... Got, that was a 
a really gross summary, but read it. It's good reading. It was, that was simplistic, yet faithful to the text, surprisingly, okay? Now, when we read the Bible and we come to places in the scriptures that confront what we believe and what we think and what our ethics and morals are and what we should be, we have to bend our knee because the empty tomb is true. And if that's true, it's all true. So what I think about this particular thing, and then the Bible confronts me and says, no, Paul, you're believing this particular thing, but God's gracious law that he has given so that my life can flourish contradicts that. I have to, I have to bend my knee because he saved me in great grace, and I want to celebrate that great grace, and the way that I celebrate it is by enjoying him and glorifying him. So the empty tomb is the hinge on which absolutely everything swings. And I'm going to uh, close with this final thing, which is that the gospel empowers you. The gospel is good news for you because it, it's, it's bigger than you. It doesn't depend on you. But finally, the gospel empowers you. And Paul gives us this at the end. And the way that he gives it is he begins to describe some things that, about himself. And kids look down at your notes and there's a number of things that Paul starts to, to share, and they describe some things that the Spirit has done in Paul. What does, what does a life empowered by the Spirit look like? Well, it looks like humility, and it looks like honesty, and it looks like repentance, and strength, and passion, and boldness. And at the tail end of that passage, Paul gives us all that when he starts saying things like, you know, I was untimely born. He, there's a great humility in Paul. He says in the Greek, untimely born means, it means abortively born. Paul is describing himself saying, I'm, I'm the preemie. I'm the runt of the apostolic litter. And he's not just saying I'm a worm and I'm worthless and I'm no good. That's not, it's not a false humility where he's thinking less of himself. He's just thinking of himself less. And there's a humility there. So that's why he says, and then Jesus Christ in his great grace appeared to me. What? I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't spend three years walking with him like the disciples did. Those guys had like this natural birth process. I was like, bam, on the Damascus road, I'm a preemie. Jesus shows up and goes, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And Paul goes, what? So Paul's conversion was so abrupt, he's like, as one abortively born, God's grace came to me. There's a great humility there. But that humility flows into other things. Honesty and repentance. He goes, I persecuted the church. Paul calls his sin, sin. Romans 7, he's like, the thing I'm supposed to do, I don't. The thing I'm supposed to be, that I shouldn't do, I do. He, Paul has no problem calling out his own sin and calling it sin because his identity is in the fact that, he's, that he is uh, Christ's child. So his identity is so rooted in Christ, he has no problem calling himself a sinner and calling his sin, sin, because it is. That's not diminishing who he is in any way because he's like, I am in Christ. I'm united to Christ. So there's a great humility and there's a great repentance. And you and I then can confess our sin to our spouses and our kids and to one another or our co-workers or whoever we have to confess to because our identity isn't being wrapped up in being seen as a good person. Our identity is wrapped up in that we're gods and we're united to Christ. And so now, because my identity isn't like, well, I can't say I'm a sinner because my identity is in being a good person and saying I'm a sinner conflicts with you seeing me as a good person. And since I need to be seen as a good person, I'll just tell you I'm not perfect, which is what the rest of the unsaved world would say. So Paul's got this great humility, and he's got this great, he's got this great repentance, right? He doesn't downplay it uh, at all. It's incredible. And maybe you're new to Redeemer, or maybe you're new to the church, or maybe you're in a journey of, of faith, and you're exploring. 
And you've maybe grown up with the idea that, you know, church is for good people. Or people who go to church think they're good people, and so only good people, you know, go to church because that's where the good people are. Look, listen, no. The church is not for good people. The church is for people who are thankful and worshiping Jesus and his grace because of their failure to be good by God's perfect standard. So KW Redeemer is not the gathering of the good. If you thought that, I'm sorry to let you know, this is not the gathering of the good. We're saints, the Bible says. We are righteous, the Bible says. But those are declarations, right? The Catholic position is you're infused. You're infused with this. Boom, you are righteous. That's Council of Trent, 1945. Read up on it. You are. And now because you are, you better, you know, increase, increase that. Otherwise, purgatory is not going to be good for you. That's the Catholic faith. We're not Catholics. We're not infused with righteousness. Bzzz. We're declared righteous. This is the great scandal of grace. In and of ourselves, we're not. Yet God says you are. He says you are. So the church is the gathering of the thankful, the gathering of the redeemed, the gathering of the forgiven. And so if you say, well, I just think the church is full of a bunch of, you know, people that can't get their act together and hypocrites, there's room for one more. So come on in and hang on to the bloody cross like the rest of us and trust in Jesus. You know, none of us have it together. And so this is what Paul gives us. He gives us this great humility. And, but then he, uh, he also gives us um, passion and boldness because that's why he says, I worked harder than all of them. And you think, whoa, Paul's getting a little big for his britches here. He's bragging. I worked hard. No, he's not. He isn't. Because he says, I worked, ha- worked harder than the rest of the apostles, but it wasn't me that was doing it. It was, it was grace in me. He's talking about how the grace of God propelled him and compelled him to work. And so he recognizes all the churches that he's planted, all the people that have come to faith. He's like, I didn't do that. God's grace through me did that. It's incredible. Paul is mesmerized by it. He's not downplaying his contribution. It's not a false humility like, Oh, no, no. I didn't have anything to do with it at all. It was the Lord. Yeah, but I, but I saw you doing that. No, no, no. Not me. Only. It, it's not a false humility. Right? I heard this hilarious thing one time. One of these old, old, uh, uh, old quotes from an old preacher where, where somebody went up to the person playing the piano and said, Oh, thank you so much for leading us in worship today. And the person said, Oh, no, no, it wasn't me. It was God. And they said, Really? It was God? Well, who played the wrong notes I heard then? You know, <laughs> God did that? No, I don't think he did. I think it was you. Right. So Paul's not, is not a false humility. He's just, he's so mesmerized by grace. He recognizes that, that grace, grace was the sole agent in his conversion, and grace is the sole agent in everybody else's conversion. So he says, it wasn't me that did the work, it was grace that did it. That's, that's his kind of his way of, of talking about it. And that's why he says, by God, the grace of God, I am what I am. And he uses this, he uses this term. And so I'm going to close with this, you know, church, to encourage you. It's that over the last year and a half, uh, we've all come together to start this work. And you've come from various churches, and you raised your hands, and, and you said, we want to come and want to start this, this work, and we want to see the gospel preserved in this city, and over time, preach the gospel. And you know, over time, we are going to see precisely what Paul saw. And uh, over the weeks and months and years, as, as we see people come to faith in Christ and rest in the grace of Christ and believe in this historical truth claim of the resurrection, um, that we will look and we will say, wow, grace did that. You know, God did that. 
God in his great grace did that. Not me and my eloquence, not me and my arguing, not me and my intellect, not me and my way of presenting things, but that just God in his great grace and his love moving towards others, that we will, we will marvel at it. We will say, grace did that. And so in conclusion, uh, the beauty of God's grace and his love towards us in Jesus Christ is not simply a biblical claim, but it's a historical claim. God, in his great grace, he wrote himself into human history through Jesus Christ because God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray.